Alright students, welcome back to Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019 Lecture. I think this is 20, but Lecture 3 on the Purgatorio. What are we talking about today? Shore of Purgatory 2, Boncante de Montefeltro, La Pia, also called Pia Ptolemy, Sordello, The Angels and the Snake, The Dream of Ganymede, and The Gate of Purgatory Proper. We've got quite a bit to talk about today. Now, let's recall where we are. Remember, we're on the shore of purgatory. The shore of purgatory is called anti-purgatory. Anti-purgatory is where we are for the first nine cantos of purgatory. Remember that on anti-purgatory, we met an angel. We saw that the angel was uh, like Chiron, moving the souls uh, from their deaths across the ocean to the mountain of purgatory. We also met Cato, who was a suicide, who was married to a woman named Marsha, we met Casella, who tried to indulge in the past with a nostalgic song. Something interesting about the song that he sang, it's actually a song that was written by Dante, funnily enough. We also met then Manfred, who was an excommunicated person. Remember, of the two divisions in anti-purgatory, there are excommunicated people and people who are late repentance. We saw the first sort of late repentance last time. That was late repentance apathy. I had mistakenly said negligence, but it is apathy. And we saw a very apathetic individual. His name was Balacqua. He was lazy and slovenly. He reminds us of a sin slash vice that we will see up on the slopes of purgatory proper called by some people sloth, but by me sloth. In any case, let us move on from the late repentance apathy to late repentance violence and meet Boncante de Montefeltro. Now, just a couple of things. I'm reading this first slide of text uh, 546 to 557, but I'm only going to read the third tercet. We were all done to death by violence, and we all sinned until our final hour, then light from heaven granted our understanding, so that repenting and forgiving, we came forward from life at peace with God, and he instilled in us the longing to see him. So you can see here that they are late repentance, that they were done in by violence, and because they were done in by Violence, they didn't have a chance to absolve their sins because they died rather rapidly and violently. Which, when you read Niccolo Machiavelli, he'll say that's actually the worst way to die, which everybody's attempting to move against uh, in his discourses on living. He says, violent death is what you do not want. And, well, you know, hearing that, that sounds pretty true. In any case, this soul then describes its uh, uh, being stabbed and where it died. And then I just, I shared this last tercet of this second slide here. I hurried to the marsh just because I think this is very uh, poetic and beautiful. The mud, the reeds entangled me. I fell. And there I saw a pool poured from my veins form on the ground. There is the tragedy of losing your body itself. A river being formed from that which was once a river within you. He sees his life as he sees his blood pour out from himself. This is something that has recently happened to him. This memory is very vivid to him, and so he shares it to us. And he lets us know that his throat was pierced and bloodied the plain, and that he lost his life, his sight and speech before he died, but he finished uttering the name of Mary. Now, something very interesting that happens to this Boncante de Montefeltro immediately after having pouring out his blood on this plain is that I'll speak the truth. Do you among the living retell it? I was taken by God's angel. See there, Francis. But he from hell, see their black chairman, cried, you from heaven. Why do you deny me him? We're just one tear. And the name of Mary. You carry off his deathless part, but I shall treat his other part in other wise. And then skipping down a tercet, his evil will, which only seeks out evil conjoined with intellect. That's fraudulence right there. And with the power his nature grants, he stirred up wind and vapor, yada, yada, yada. In any case, this reminds us very much, uh, this is an intertextual connection. 
between Canto 27 of the Inferno and Canto 5 of the uh, Purgatorio. And just like when you heard Bon Conte de Montefeltro, you thought, De Montefeltro? Do I know about another Montefeltro or Guido de Montefeltro? You do. Guido de Montefeltro from Canto 27 in the Inferno, amongst the deceitful counselors like Ulysses and Diomedes, you recall that he also had a drama play out during his death for his soul between a demon and an angel. Remember, the angel was called St. Francis, who actually will be an angel in heaven, and the demon was called the Black Cherubim. Here it is. <clears throat> 27, 112 to 123. Then Francis came as soon as I was dead for me, but one of the black cherubim told him, Don't bear him off. Do not cheat me. He must come down among my menials for the counsel that he gave was fraudulent. Since then I've kept close track to snatch his scalp. One can't absolve a man who's not repented, and no one can repent and will at once. Law of contradiction won't allow it. And then perhaps you did not think that I was a logician a couple lines down. All right, so... Fact sheet, Juan Conte de Montefeltro. We meet him in Canto 5. He is the son of Guido de Montefeltro. And like Guido de Montefeltro, he is very much a Ghibelline contra the Guelph, the white Guelph, that is Dante. So this guy is somebody who is on the other side of the tracks from Dante. And so recall, part of the reason we established that Dante puts Ulysses and Diomedes in hell rather than putting them in heaven is because they were Greeks. The Greeks defeated the Trojans. The Trojans were the ancestors of the Romans. The Romans are the ancestors of the Italians. Therefore, Dante is pro-Troi, he is pro-Trojan, anti-Greek. So there's some prejudice there. Well, the reason then that Guido de Montefeltro could be argued to be down in the Inferno is that he is a Ghibelline, and as uh, Dante is a Guelph, that, again, Dante has some pro-Guelph, anti-Ghibelline feelings. Well... That does not seem to be the sole basis for his judgment. Because the son of Guido de Montefeltro, who also happens to be a Ghibelline, and had a very similar drama at his death, and apparently lived a very similar life to his father, uh, dying in battle, makes it into purgatory. And why is that? Well, it says we get two reasons. He had Mary on his lips when he died, and the, uh, the demon says for one tear, for one tear he makes it, and again, this reiterates the fact that we learned from Manfred that the difference between those in purgatory and those in inferno is not the degree or severity of their sin, but whether they recognize their sin and repent. And even uh, those who do not uh, do much more than recognize their sin and then feel some contrition for it, because obviously this person converted on his deathbed with a, a pierced throat. And so he just didn't have much time to make up for it. And where did he die? He died in a very famous battle, a battle that Dante fought in called the Battle of Campaldino in 1289. In fact, I have seen scholars suggest before, though I don't think there's any evidence for this, that the reason that Dante integrated this man into this story was to apologize for having killed him. Now, I think that's less likely than uh, Dante could have been like a person who killed him because it was Guelph's first Ghibellines. And if Dante killed anybody, it could have been somebody just like this man. So perhaps he feels in some way responsible for any Ghibelline, and he gives a specific face to the Ghibellines through Juan Conte. Perhaps. Perhaps that is the idea. In any case, recall here that a devil, just like with his father Guido, tries to take Juan Conte's soul down to hell. But the fact is that he's repented at the end of things, so the devil only gets his mortal part, and then Juan Conte's body disappears, which is, was apparently some medieval mystery. Where did his body go? Was he raptured? 
did something else happen? And he explains that it got taken by down the screen, and that's why it's very hard to uh, find it. Uh, something interesting here. Continuing our theme of fathers not necessarily being like their sons. Remember that Manfred, his father Frederick II, was in Canto 12 uh, in the River Phlegathon in hell. Manfred, obviously, is on the shores of purgatory as an excommunicate, waiting 30 times the amount of time he was excommunicated to ascend uh, the mountain. Something interesting about, Mount, about Manfred. I represented him as having definitely killed his father, half-brother, and two nephews. It is only alleged that he killed those individuals. And so he actually had a very complicated life and was known to be very charismatic, handsome, and was, uh, in general, well-liked. But he did uh, also pull some interesting moves. He claimed somebody was dead when he wasn't dead in order to be crowned king and then stayed king and pulled some very interesting moves during his life. I, I highly recommend that you look up Manfred if you are interested in politics. In any case, moving on to Pia Ptolemy. Now, she's still in Canto Five, and she only gets seven lines, and I want you to pay close attention to them because you, I'm going to ask you to contrast her with an individual from Canto Five in the Inferno. Pray! After you're returning to the world, when after your long journey you've rested, the third soul following the second said, May you remember me, who am La Pia. Siena made, Marema unmade me. He who, when we were wed, gave me his pledge, and then, as nuptial ring, his gem knows that. All right, what's that mean? Okay, Pia, La Pia. Nobody's named La Pia, her name is Pia Ptolemy. Now, a couple interesting intertextual, inter canticle connections. This is Canto 5. Who we met in Canto 5 last time in the Inferno was we were in the Canto of Lust. We met Francesca and Paolo. We talked to Francesca. Now remember this. Francesca gave a rather uh, extended uh, explanation of uh, how it is that she came to die and uh, gave several excuses for why she came to the end she did. I was reading. There was no body chaperoning. Lancelot kissed I felt the urge to kiss. And remember, she was trying to excuse everything. If only the Lord of the universe did not hate us. And she goes into uh, avid detail describing her sin. Well, Pia Ptolemy is also in Canto 5, but in the Purgatorio. Again, we see this difference between the Purgatorio and the Inferno. She was also killed by her husband. Also likely for adultery. An alternative account is that he, uh, which I think doesn't hit the parallel quite as well, is that she was actually thrown off a castle roof so that her husband could marry a wealthy neighbor. But how she is definitely connected with Francesca is she's in Canto Five and she died uh, by her husband killing her, which is what she explicitly says. Now, how she is different is rather than going into detail and describing, describing the grisly details of her sin and how she came to die, she seems to have some shame. Because she seems to feel some guilt about uh, the fact that she committed adultery and that led to her death, so she passes over it in silence. It's sort of like that expression, if you don't have anything nice to say, you might as well not say anything at all. If there's something shameful that happened, there's no need to, uh, to uh, really indulge in it and talk about it. And so again, we're noticing both those things which connect us to the Inferno, but also those things which differentiate the Purgatoria from the Inferno. Very sad story here. In any case, moving on now to the late repentant, the third part of late repentance. Those who are negligent, and we will end with the Valley of the Rulers, the negligent kings, and I'll have to explain what was it that they were negligent of exactly. Uh, apparently it was their faith, and I'll make another interconnect, inter, uh, 
canticle connection, not only to the Inferno, but also to the Paradiso itself, before we move on. Uh, I have here some info. You'll be able to read through it when I send you the email, but I'm not. All right, we approach this character named Sordello, and I think you will recall a couple characters from the Inferno as we do. We came to him, O oh Lombard soul, what pride, what disdain were in your stance. Your eyes moved with such dignity, such gravity. He said no thing to us, but let us pass his eyes intent upon us as a lion watches when it is at rest. Yet Virgil made his way to him, appealing to him to show us how we'd best ascend. And he did not reply to that, to that request, but asked us what our country was, and who we were, at which my gentle guide began Mantua. And that spirit, who had been so solitary, rose from his position, saying, O oh, Mantuan, I am Sordello from your own land, and each embrace the other. Now notice that this character does not yet know that he is embracing Virgil. He does know that he is embracing something from his country, land, from his fatherland. Alright, let's meet Sordello. He is originally described as a lion, as disdainful, as full of pride. This recalls to us, at the very least, Canto 10 in the Inferno with Farinata, who is himself described as great disdain. Also recall the first question that Farinata asks to Dante. Uh, his first question is, who is your family? Just as Sordello's first question to these travelers is, who is your country? Direct parallel being drawn there. Uh, and, uh, well, we'll see also that he has something to say about Italy in the same way that, so now, let's recall, we're in Canto 6. Canto 6 in the Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso will be the canto of politics and of the problems of politics. And so in Canto 6 in the Inferno, we met Shiaco, the pig man amongst the gluttons. We saw Cerberus there. And when you recall that Shiaco told us about the four Florentines who were the blackest souls in hell, Tagayo, Jacopo Ristucucci, Farinata and Mosca. Now, recall also that after having said that, he gave a disquisition on the problems in Florence. Well, the same sort of thing happens here. After Dante sees Sordello and Virgil hug, simply knowing that they're from the same country, he gives a long excoriation called the, the digressus, or the digression, where he talks about the flaws of Italy. The idea being that when he met his own countryman, Farinata, who was a gibbling to his Guelph dump, they got into a conflict. They immediately started to divide themselves. So much so that when Dante speaks to Farinata, he then has to speak separately to uh, Cavalcanti to Cavalcanti about poetry and his son Guido Cavalcanti, who was also a poet and politician, and then goes back to talking about politics again. The idea being that when he talks to his own countrymen, they divide. When he sees people from a good country or a good land talking to each other, they actually literally embrace. The idea is that you should be drawn together with those around you, not divide like schismatics in any case. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, Dante will then describe, of course, Italy itself, not as a mistress of provinces, that means a lady of good repute, but as a brothel. A brothel is a house of ill repute, a house of walkers, of the night, a house of Jezebels, a house of prostitutes. And so that is uh, a very disparaging idea, a very low idea, a very poor idea of Italy that Dante has, all based on just seeing how people should act right in front of him. In any case, ah, abject Italy, you inn of sorrows, you ship without a helmsman, notice that aquatic metaphor there, uh, in harsh seas, no queen of provinces, but of bordellos. Bordellos, of course, means... Uh, uh, Houses of ill repute. In any case, he calls it squalid Italy. It's not a very good Italy. Remember, 
This is called the digression. This is not the narrative of the poem. As you know, Dante being a master poet, it uses several different poetic techniques throughout the course of the epic. That is part of what makes an epic, that it includes not just one narrative technique, but multiple ones. And one of them is that he will break the narrative at times. We've been observing the apostrophe or the direct address when he does that. Uh, but now here we get the one time that he ever just literally makes a digression, a long digression where he excoriates his home, which is... Uh, well, you know, uh, something somewhat unprecedented, and well, which uh, you may come to understand and appreciate in time. In any case, moving on, moving on. So, Sordello has met a Mantuan, but now he needs to meet Virgil. When glad and gracious welcomings have been repeated three and four times, then Sordello drew himself back and asked, But who are you? Before the spirits worthy of ascent to God had been directed to this mountain, my bones were buried by Octavian. As you know, Virgil was commissioned by Augustus through, um, through uh, a fellow friend uh, to, to write the Aeneid. I am Virgil, and I am deprived of heaven for no fault other than my lack of faith. That all-important theological virtue. This was the answer given by my God. Even like one who suddenly has seen something before him, and then marveling, does and does not believe, saying it is, is not. So did Sordello seem. And then he bent his brow, returned to Virgil humbly, and clasped him where the lesser present presence class, just as this picture shows to the left. He said, O oh, glory of the Latins, that's quite a way to be addressed. You through whom our tongue revealed its power, you eternal honor of my native city, what merit or what grace shows you to me? If I deserve to hear your word, then answer. Tell me if you're from hell and what cloister. That's interesting that if I deserve construction. We recall that if I deserve construction from Canto 26 of the Inferno, when Virgil says, if I deserved of you, when I wrote of Troy. Um, to Ulysses to get him to talk to him. And so, again, we see this uh, Sordello, of course, being himself a singer and poet, uh, is a big fan of Virgil. And so, <laughs> Virgil then describes going through the sorry kingdom, uh, the Inferno, talks about being amongst infant innocence, he's in limbo, and those who were stolen from the teeth of death, death before they could be sent for. He says he didn't have the three holy... Virtues, and then Sordello explains night and day. Shh. All right. In any case, this is the explanation. Virgil introduces himself to Sordello, and Sordello is very excited about this. Not only is he excited to have met a Mantuan, he's excited to meet one of the greatest poets of all time, who also is from his hometown. Now, Virgil says, why did he not make it to the Purgatorio? Well, he, unlike Cato, seems to not have had the three theological virtues, slash, he didn't have the appropriate faith. Um, I would say that probably the reason Cato is in the Purgatorio is because of his tremendous civic virtue and what he did for Rome. Unfortunately, Virgil, though uh, also having civic virtue, did not, uh, did not die uh, for what he believed in in the same way that Cato did, which was to commit suicide after Pompeius Magnus died to Julius Caesar, who then would become a dictator and replace the republican form of government with an empire and an emperor. In any case, Virgil says that he did not have access to the three theological virtues. Those are also called the Christian virtues. We talked about them yesterday. They are the colors of Christmas, red, white, and green. They are the colors of the Mexican flag and the Italian flag, both nations traditionally being Catholic, those being their virtues. Those colors mean green, hope, because hope springs back eternally, like the god Dionysus and also the Easter festival. Faith, white, because it is pure. 
and the connection of trust that binds all people together who are so bound. And then charity, red, or either the fires of charity that purify, or, all, or the blood of the sacrifice. That is the ultimate sacrifice one can give, which is to devote their lives to something, or to give their lives for something. Alright, Sordello then explains that on the, uh, on the Purgatorio, night is going to fall, and night does fall while they are talking. And something interesting is that, unlike in the Inferno, you are not assigned a specific place to be in the Purgatorio. So Sordello has freedom of movement alongside Virgil and Dante, they can walk together. They can spend some time together. They can learn together. They can cover some ground as a, as a teacher, what we do daily. And so he gives a quick explanation. Dante says, hmm, why is it that you cannot move forward as a soul at night here? And the expression given or the reasoning given is that night itself keeps souls from moving on. The idea being that if you were to move at night, you would move in a disoriented way. You might move backwards. And, well, that wouldn't be a very effective use of time if your whole goal is to get out of purgatory as fast as possible. Now, I only slightly mention this here. At the end of Canto 7, we have the negligent rulers in the Valley of Kings. What is it they were negligent of? They seem to have put value on their political careers over their spiritual careers. And, in fact, in Canto 6, um, uh, uh, of, and I know this is seven, but in six of the Paradiso, we will meet uh, a ruler who is also in some way negligent, who sought fame rather than spiritual excellence. His name will be Justinian. Justinian does get mentioned in these two cantos as the person who laid down the code, but who has nobody to implement it, because of course uh, the Pope will be moved from Rome to Avignon soon, and the Holy Roman Emperor, who's supposed to be in Rome, is obviously in Germany during Dante's time. All right. Good. Uh, I just have a couple facts I'm going to point out here just to help you understand some parallels on seven. Now, something you notice about the terraces of purgatory is that there are seven of them, and therefore there are seven terrible vices. You remember lust, avarice, gluttony, uh, pride, envy, sloth, and one other, uh, prodigality, uh, and another that I'm not thinking of at this moment, but I will think of later. In any case, we now see through not only having four cardinal virtues, which you quiz on last week, that those four cardinal virtues are joined by three theological virtues, which means that there are now accessible, after the Christian age, to people, seven virtues. Seven virtues to combat what? The seven vices. And it's like nobody had a chance to make it to heaven without these virtues when they were uh, uh, earlier on. And um, so now they do. It's almost as if the souls before the time of Christianity had seven vices that could attack them, but only four virtues to clothe them. Now it is seven verse seven. Now the field is uh, a level playing field. And I just wanted to mention that very quickly. Uh, do make sure that you know the four cardinal virtues, justice, temperance, sometimes called moderation, fortitude, sometimes called courage, and prudence, sometimes called wisdom, and that you know also, of course, the three holy virtues, hope, faith, and charity. All right. Night has fallen. And so we have our tenth piece of direct address. Uh, here, reader, let your eyes look sharp at truth. For now the veil has grown so very thin, it is not very difficult to pass within. And we have a drama play out in front of us, a drama of two angels 
and a snake. I saw that company of noble spirits silent and looking upward, pale and humble as if in expectation. And I saw emerging and descending from above two angels bearing flaming swords, of which the blades were broken off without their tips. Their garments, just as green as newborn leaves, were agitated, fanned by their green wings. Green wings of all things. Probably not what you imagine when you imagine an angel. And trailed behind them. And one angel came and stood somewhat above us, while the other descended on the opposite embankment, flanking the company of souls between them. My eyes made out their blonde heads clearly golden, but my sight was dazzled by their faces, just like any sense bewildered, bewildered by excess. Both come from Mary's bosom, said Sordello, to serve as the custodians of the valley against the serpent that will soon appear. All right, let's see it. Even as Virgil spoke, Sordello drew himself Hit him to himself. This is Canto 8, too, just to make sure you know. See there, our adversary, connection to Lucifer. He said, and then pointed with his finger. At the unguarded edge of that small valley, there was a serpent, similar, perhaps, to that which offered Eve the bitter food. Through grass and flowers, the evil streak advanced. From time to time, it turned and licked in its head, and licked its back, like any beast that preens and sleeps, like an aerobarus. I did not see... And therefore cannot say just how the hawks of heaven, those are angels, not actual hawks, made their move. But I indeed saw both of them in motion. Hearing the green wings cleave the air, the serpent fled, and the angels wheeled around as each of them flew upward back to his high station. And that's the drama that we see. So the first question we have to ask is, what the heck does that mean? And so, let's take a look. A drama between two angels and a serpent then unfolds 819 to 108. A couple things about the angels. They have green wings. They have green vestments. They have red flaming swords. And they have shining bright white faces. You see there the three colors of the theological virtues. Red, charity. Green, hope. White, uh, faith. Sometimes trust. Uh, also they have golden heads. The golden head trying, should remind you very much of a crown or a halo. Both are golden circles, symbols of full or perfect perspectives. All right, good. And as I've told you, these are, of course, the colors of traditionally Catholic nations' flags, the Italian and Mexican flag. All right. What happens exactly? Well, these two angels see this snake, and then they fly towards it and attack it. Well, what does that mean? This is a retelling of the Garden of Eden event. Now, something about the Garden of Eden, the story, there were two people. There was man, there was Eve. Eve goes to a tree that man and Eve are not supposed to eat from. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, there's a snake on this tree. And this snake says, hey, you should eat from this tree. Eve says, no, I shouldn't eat from the tree because I will surely die on the day that I do so. The snake says, no, you will not die. She eats from the tree. Then she gives some to Adam. He eats from the tree. Then they clothe themselves. Then they see God. God says, you need to get out of here. And they get out of there. And then two cherubim, which are angels, holding flaming swords, then guard Eden for all time. The idea being that the humans, when they merged with the snake, which is sin in this case, uh, when they sinned and became sinful, they could no longer be in Eden. Well, the snake is actually chased out of Eden, or out of purgatory in this case. What does that mean? Well, this is an allegory for what's having in, happening in purgatory. Where does sin exist in the world? In the people who are sinful. That means in people. So who gets chased out of Eden? People, the first sinners. Well, what happens in the purgatory? Sin gets chased out of you. What does that mean? You purify yourself. So this drama indicates what it is that you are to do in purgatory. You are to chase the sin out of yourself in case. And actually, if you think about it, a flaming sword without a tip, you're supposed to burn and beat the sin out of yourself, which will uh, essentially be 
what we see. So the allegorical interpretation of what happens here is that this is an interpretation of what is to happen in purgatory, that you are to eliminate sin, to give pure expression of love, and you, you will do this through honest work. And, well, insofar as you work through the purgatory, that seems to be what it is you will actually do. Now, it's still nighttime, so it's time to go to sleep. Some time passes, Dante is asleep, and now he has a dream at that all-important hour close to morning where the medievals believe uh, true dreams, or when the, the uh, medievals believe true dreams come from. And so, and I seem to be there where Ganymede deserted his own family when he was snatched up. Remember, Ganymede was a prince of Troy who was snatched up by the eagle of Zeus uh, for the high consistory. That's like a church. Within myself, I thought, this eagle may be used to hunting only here. Its claws refused to carry upward any prey found elsewhere. Then it seemed to me that wheeling slightly, terrible as lightning, swooped, snatching me up, that's the rapture, to the fire's orbit. And there it seemed that he and I were burning. And this imagined conflagration scorched me so I was compelled to break my sleep, just like the waking of Achilles when he started up casting his eyes about him, not knowing where he was after his mother had stolen him, asleep away from Chiron, and in her arms, I think I, I called Charon Chiron earlier, uh, that was a mistake, in her arms and had carried him to Skyros, the isle the Greeks would later make him leave. Alright, so what just happened there? Again, another allegory for what happens in the Purgatorio. Let's talk about it. This is the first of three dreams during three nights that Dante has during the course of this uh, text, during the course of the Purgatorio. Now, during this dream, interestingly enough, he imagines that he, like Ganymede, is pulled up by Jove's eagle, Zeus's eagle, and taken to a fiery orbit and then lit on fire. Uh, uh, which um, is very interesting. That seems to mimic the actual mythological story of Ganymede, and that Ganymede was a beautiful young Trojan youth who was taken by Zeus's eagle up to um, Olympus to become the cupbearer of the gods. I guess the idea would have been that his mortal parts, like Heracles's mortal parts, would have had to be burned off. Interestingly enough, Ganymede replaces Heba, the goddess of youth, as cupbearer, and Heba is actually married to Heracles, who has to burn away his mortal parts in order to become a god. The idea being that you have to burn away your mortal parts to become pure spirit. You must burn away that which is bodily uh, in or, or in temporary in order to get that which is eternal. You must, in the purgatorio, burn that which holds you down in order to move up again. This is a second allegory for what is to happen in the purgatorio. Interestingly enough, parallel to this dream happening is an actual event happening. While um, while Dante is dreaming of Ganymede being taken by a celestial eagle higher up to a place of burning, he is literally picked up by an angel named St. Lucia, the same way St. Lucia from the first two cantos of the Inferno, and deposited in front of the gate of purgatory. And so his dream reflects reality during the course of this vision that he is writing. Uh, very interesting. Uh, the idea of rapture here, being caught up, is not only a Greco-Roman idea, but also very much a Hebrew and Christian idea idea. And in fact, there was a Hebrew, I think it was a prophet here, or, or a king, uh, showing my lack of knowledge there, from 2 Kings 2, 1 to 18, named Elijah, I have it right here, he was suddenly taken in a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. So, this idea of rapture is a, an idea that crosses cultures, crosses religions, crosses time. Here's the allegorical interpretation I was Sharing with you earlier, carried into a fire by eagle means to burn away the sin or error or mortal part or dying parts of one. Just like, remember, even, it's funny that Acolytes we mentioned here, 
You recall that something that his mother Thetis attempted to do him in one of the mythological accounts of how he achieved invulnerability was that she helped to burn away his mortal parts, all except for his heel, of course. And thus, one purifies one's soul of the body or sin to make one's soul ready for heaven. And then we approach the gate of purgatory proper. Finally, we're going to get to this first terrace. And we see our 11th bit of direct address. Reader, you see how my subject becomes more elevated. Do not wonder if it is therefore presented with more art. So he's going to get more artistic and more poetic in his expression to match the art of that which he is attempting to represent. These divine themes. Now we were drawing closer. We had reached that part from which, where first I had seen a breach precisely like a gap that cleaves a wall. It's pretty small. I now made out a gate. And there below it, three steps that are colors different leading to it, and a custodian who had not yet spoken. As I looked more and more directly at him, I saw him seated on the upper step, his face so radiant I could not bear it. So again, we can't see these angels' faces. There we approached, and the first step was white marble, so polished and so clear that I was mirrored there as I appeared in life. Interesting, the great courses to uh, professors who teach the course on the Divine Comedy, they do a great job, but they say that the three, uh, uh, the three steps are white, green, and red after theological virtues. I think if you look at it yourself, you'll see that they are white, purple, and red. That is an error on their part, as good a job as they do. The second step, made out of crumbling rock, rough textured, scorched, with cracks that ran across its length and width, was darker than deep purple, very much not green. The third, resting above, more massively, appeared to me to be of porphyry, as flaming red as blood that spurts from veins. And my guide, with much goodwill, had me ascend, by way of these three steps in joining me, do ask him humbly to unbolt the gate. Very different from Virgil's attempt to command the fallen angels to let him through to this, and also a very different result. And a good question asked recently was, is this the same angel that comes down to open the gate of Dis for uh, Dante and Virgil? And I would say, I don't know, but that's a great question. I think the possibility is a very real one. I threw myself devoutly at his holy feet, asking him to open out of mercy, but first I beat... Three times upon my breast, upon my forehead, he traced, this is very odd, seven peas with his sword's point and said, when you have entered within, take care to wash away these wounds. And uh, it does not say that his sword does not have a point. It does say that the two cherubim who chased the snake in the drama do not have points. And so if you're wondering about that. All right, what are these three steps and what do they mean? One is white as marble and reflective. You can see your face. One is purple but all cracked and dark and has sort of rough texture. And then the third is... Uh, you know, very dynamic, like a ruby. Porphyry is a very dynamic, red, deep color, like crimson, blood colored. And so, there one interpretation of what these strep, three strep, streps, steps could be is the third allegorical interpretation of what the act of purgatory is. So, we've seen it first and foremost today. What was it that we saw first and foremost today? So, we said uh, the burning away of your sin is one allegory of purgatory. Oh, what was the other one? I'm forgetting. Sorry, I just have to look back very quickly. We said the dream of Ganymede, angels and servant. Ah, yes, yes. You have to change, chase away the sin. That was the drama of the angels and the snake. You have to burn away the sin. That was the idea of Ganymede and uh, the eagle. And then also you have to apparently take these three steps and what is it that they mean? So the first step. One idea is that it is the recognition of sin. That's what the unabsolved violent did. That's what Manfred, who was next communicated, Matt, managed to do. That's what Sordello managed to do before he died. And Boncante as well. Boncante in particular. 
The second step, which is dark purple, seems to indicate the act of contrition. That means feeling sorrowful for one's failures. And then, of course, the red part, the putting some effort in, is the act of satisfaction, actively solving the problem, or sacrificing one's time and energy into a solution. And these seem to be the three steps that are taken in order to get into purgatory, or these are the three steps that are taken uh, uh, as evidence of the, or as symbol for the process that one goes through in purgatory. Though obviously the first step needs to be taken, possibly the second step as well. The third step of satisfaction will be certainly given in purgatory. Alright, the angel then inscribes seven P's on Dante's face. What do these seven P's mean? And why are there seven? Well, there are obviously seven because there will be one P per cornice that Dante goes up. So, as he goes up each cornice, he will have a P erased from his face, and he will become lighter. It is as if, as his sin disappears, he becomes lighter, as if he becomes less bodily, more like a floating ethereal being. And so, commentators have often asked, what do these P's stand for? Because there are several, several Italian words that they could mean. They could mean peccati, which means sins, so you have to wipe away your sins. That makes sense. But it could also mean penal, where we get the word penal system from, which is our penalty system, uh, uh, our justice system. Those are punishments. So he could have to go through these punishments. I think that makes less sense than sense. Or they could also be piage in Italian. In Latin, it's called plagi, where we get the word plague from, which means wounds. I think that makes less sense, too, unless you allegorically understand wounds to be sins, in which case... Piage or Picati would both be correct. We do need to know all three. So, allegory. Just like with the angel, which it could be a symbol for intellect, chasing away the snake, a symbol for sin, is similar to the act of washing one's face before entering purgatory. So are the steps in front of the gate, a symbol for the purgatorial act slash one, one does in purgatory. And so, Dante, in several different ways, has told us exactly the same thing, exactly what we are going to be doing. Exactly, And so now we are prepared to finally get to the doing of what we should be doing, which is the act of purging in the act of, and in the place of purgatory. And so, the two keys that Dante, or that the angel has, one is silver, one is gold. I'm not going to read this to you, but you should know that. The angel takes his two keys, and he turns both of them. Apparently, if both of them do not turn, the gate does not open, the soul does not pass through. Though this angel has been told by St. Peter, who was the first pope, who gave him these two keys, these two keys to heaven, though obviously these souls don't just go straight to heaven, they go to purgatory and then to heaven, and so uh, St. Peter has to give you some grace slash mercy, but you have to put in some work. He was told to err on the side of grace, so even if somebody's not quite worthy... Well, I should help them out a little bit. And so, what does the golden key mean? So like the sun and Apollo, it means power, and therefore is more precious. Well, what does the silver key, like the reflective light of the moon, mean? Well, it itself means discernment, or reflection. And so, one must have power and discernment. One must expend energy and thought in order to purge oneself and to move up this mountain. One must use both daylight hours to make progress physically, and nighttime hours to understand the progress one has made by reflecting that which has happened. Think about the word reflecting what has happened. That means literally representing what has happened in your mind as well as possible. 
In any case, these keys were given by St. Peter. He was the first pope and an apostle of Jesus. They are the keys to heaven. Uh, this angel was instructed to err on the side of grace. And then the last little bit we get that reminds us not only of the Greco-Roman story of Orpheus, who lost his wife by turning back too soon, and also of the wife of Lot, who turned into a pillar of salt by turning back too soon, is that those who look back start over. And so there is only one direction to look during the course of the purgatory, and that is forward.